Well, we have been in a teaching series called Legacy. As you can see from the slide up there, the tagline of this teaching series is Our Place in His Story. That every one of our lives is a part of God's story. And that our lives don't just stand alone, that our lives have a legacy of thousands of years of men and women who have lived for God, who have struggled through the ups and downs of life, who've experienced God, who've learned things, who have grown through their failures. And all of that legacy is handed down to us in the Bible. And so our goal in doing this teaching series, number one, is that we would look at the Bible from cover to cover so that we understand the whole Bible. Because the truth is, is that if we don't understand it, we won't read it. And if we don't read it, we won't grow in God. And we want everyone to read their Bible, and so we want to help everyone to understand the Bible. The other thing that we want to accomplish through this teaching series is we want to see that every story in the Bible, every person, that it's not just some ancient history, that every passage, every story, every book in the Bible is speaking to us today and is part of our legacy today. And the more we understand that, the more excited we'll get to open our Bibles every day to see what is God going to speak to me today? What from my legacy am I going to receive today as I open up the Word and read it? So if we'll go to the next slide, you'll see what we've done is we've taken the entire Bible and we've broken it down into eight sections. And we're spending one Sunday on each section of the Bible. Last week, we looked at the poetry books, which are also known as the wisdom books. And we looked at King David and what he's still speaking to us today through the Psalms. So if you missed the message last week or any of the messages of this series, you can go to our website, listen to them there, or you can download our podcast and you can get all of our sermons from our podcast. So we are in part four of the series, which means according to our charts, we're going to look at the major prophets today. These are five books in the Bible written by four prophets. Jeremiah wrote two of the books, so we got five books but four prophets. And I told you that in this series, I would give you a new Bible fact every week. One fun little factoid so that you can say every week, hey, I learned something new about the Bible. So today's factoid comes in the form of a question, and that is this. What is the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets? We've got these two different sections in the Old Testament. We've got major prophets, and we've got minor prophets. What's the difference? Well, the answer is going to blow your mind. Are you ready for this? The major prophets wrote longer books. All right, that, that is the only difference, okay? That's it. If you look at the major prophets, Isaiah's book is 66 chapters long. Jeremiah's book is 52 chapters long, plus he wrote five more chapters in Lamentations. Ezekiel wrote 48 chapters. Daniel only wrote 12 chapters, but they're long chapters, okay? His book is actually longer than it seems. The 12 minor prophets, their books all range from just 1 to 14 chapters each, but even the ones that are 14 chapters are still much shorter than Daniel. So the only difference is the major prophets wrote longer books. That's it. There was no difference in the anointing between the two groups. The major prophets weren't more anointed. They didn't hear from God more clearly. In fact, all Old Testament prophets were held to the same standard. And that is 100% accuracy in declaring the word of God. 100%. 98% wasn't good enough to be an Old Testament prophet. Thank God we don't live in the Old Testament anymore. And we're not held to that standard. But these guys were. 
And so with the major prophets, they wrote longer books. Why? Because their ministries lasted longer. And because the books are longer, we have more to learn from them and we understand more about the times. But it doesn't mean they're more anointed and it doesn't mean they heard from God any differently. They just wrote longer books. There you go. You learned something new about the Bible. So we're going to break down this section of the Bible, the major prophets. We've got four prophets we're going to look at today. The first is Isaiah, and Isaiah prophesied from approximately 740 to 680 B.C. This puts him during the reigns of five different kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. He was most likely murdered by the evil king Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the most evil kings in the southern kingdom. And, and very likely, it doesn't say it in the Bible, but we get it from Jewish history, that Isaiah was not only murdered by Manasseh, he was actually sawn in half by Manasseh. In fact, when you read the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews chapter 11 lists off all the heroes of the faith, and it says some were sawn in two, the Hebrews believe that the writer was talking about Isaiah right there, that he was one of the heroes that was sawn in half. So Isaiah prophesied to all of these kings until the evil one killed him. Isaiah was critical. He lived in Jerusalem. He prophesied to the southern kingdom, which most of the prophets in the Bible prophesied to the southern kingdom. Why is that? Well, in the northern kingdom, prophets didn't last very long. They got murdered much more quickly up there. The two major prophets to the northern kingdom were Elijah and Elisha, and they didn't write any books, right? But Isaiah was critical. He prophesied to all five of these kings and he was critical in preserving the people of God when the kings were straying away he would prophesy and he would bring the kings to come back and restore the worship of the one true God and to bring the people back on track that is up until Manasseh when he prophesied to Manasseh Manasseh just killed him the book of Isaiah is known as the Bible within the Bible I don't know if you've ever heard this before but Isaiah has 66 chapters the Bible has 66 books. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah correlates with the Old Testament, which has 39 books in it. And so in the first 39 chapters, it has the feel of the Old Testament, which means it's very much dealing with the judgment for sin. The final 27 chapters correlate with the 27 books of the New Testament. They focus on the coming Savior. And they focus on God redeeming his people. So what we have just in the book of Isaiah is we've got a parallel of the entire Bible. Now, Isaiah didn't know this when he was writing his book because the authors of the Bible weren't the ones that put the chapters in there. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but we added the chapters later just to make it easier to find stuff in the Bible. The authors of the Bible didn't put the chapters in there, so Isaiah didn't know that he was writing 66 chapters. Isaiah didn't know that there would end up being 66 books in the Bible. But Isaiah is the Bible within the Bible. The book of Isaiah contains the most direct prophecies about Jesus Christ. The most concentrated place where you're going to find prophecies about Jesus, including the fact that John the Baptist prepared the way for him, the fact that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin, virgin, the description of his ministry, such as he was going to proclaim liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, that... Uh, um, 
that uh, he was going to provide comfort to those that mourn. All of that was described by Isaiah. Isaiah also talked about his torture and his sacrificial death. And Isaiah prophesied about his second coming. Isaiah did all of these prophecies about Jesus coming. And he was 100% accurate in all of them. And he prophesied them all about 700 years before they happened. It's pretty amazing, right? I get excited about this kind of stuff, but I'm a Bible nerd. So, all right. So, let's talk about, we've got three more prophets to talk about, but in order to talk about them, in order to understand these next three prophets, we need to break down the history of Israel just a little bit more. I told you guys two weeks ago when we looked at the history books that uh, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed and the southern kingdom was taken into captivity. That was a general overview, but if you actually look at it more specifically, the people of the southern kingdom getting taken into captivity actually lasted 20 years. And we want to look at this course of 20 years so that we can understand the rest of these major prophets. Over the course of these 20 years, there was actually three separate deportations three times that the people of God were carried away as captives into Babylon. The first one was in 605 B.C. A few years prior to that, Jehoiakim was set up as the king of Judah, but he was actually set up as a puppet king. Egypt put him in power, and he basically just served Egypt. Well, a couple years later, Babylon destroys Egypt, so now Jehoiakim is a puppet king for Babylon. And when Jehoiakim finally decides to rebel against Babylon, the armies of Babylon come into Judah, destroy Judah's armies, and they take the first deportation of captives away in 605 B.C. The first deportation of captives was most of the leaders. The priests, the civil leaders, the religious leaders, they took most of their leaders and took them away into captivity. Eventually, Jehoiakim dies... And we get his son, Jehoiashin, takes over. Well, immediately when Jehoiashin takes over, Babylon comes back and lays siege to Jerusalem. The siege lasts for three months. Jehoiashin ends up getting killed. And they take 10,000 more captives away in a second deportation. These 10,000 captives that were taken away were all of the skilled laborers. It was anybody that had education, anybody that had skill, anybody that could do anything was taken away. And all that was left behind were the unskilled laborers who could just tend the fields. At that point, Babylon named a guy named Zedekiah the new king. Well, eventually Zedekiah rebelled, and Babylon seized Jerusalem a second time. But this second siege was horrible. It lasted over two years. Over two years, the city was surrounded. Nobody could go out. Nobody could go in. Nobody could get any food. The people were starving. Insanity starts to set in, right? This was a terrible siege. And finally, in 586 B.C., the people of Jerusalem surrendered. The walls of Jericho were burned to the ground. The temple was burned to the ground. And another group of captives was taken and deported in the third deportation. At that time, a guy named Gedaliah was named the governor of Judah. Well, a year later in 585 B.C., the Israelites murdered the governor. Now they were afraid of repercussions, so they fled to Egypt, and they went and they hid in Egypt for the rest of the time of captivity. 
All right, so you guys understand this. We got first deportation in 605 B.C. We got the second deportation where 10,000 skilled laborers were taken. The third deportation is when the temple and the walls were actually burned to the ground. And then a year later, the remnants fled to Egypt. Now let's look at our prophets so we can understand why it's important that we get this 20 years of history down. First, let's look at, at Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah prophesied from approximately 627 to 582 B.C. He prophesied through all three deportations, but he was never deported. He was a part of the remnant that was left behind. He fled to Egypt with the rest of the remnants, and he actually continued prophesying in Egypt until the day he died. So Jeremiah prophesied through all 20 years of judgment, but he was never taken away. Now Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. His messages were deeply emotional. He was always weeping over Jerusalem. He was always weeping over, over God's people. And the people rejected his message. They wouldn't heed his warnings. And while he prophesied judgment and he did prophesy the 70 years of captivity, he also brought hope of restoration for the remnant that was left behind. And he was also the first prophet who declared that a new covenant was coming. That uh, the God's people were going to live under a new covenant. And we know now that that new covenant was through Jesus. He also wrote Lamentations. Lamentations is one of the most depressing books in the Bible. Why? Because he wrote it in 586 B.C. right after the temple was burned to the ground. And the book of Lamentations was actually Jeremiah walking around weeping over the once beautiful city that had now been destroyed because of sin. And it's Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of, of Jerusalem. So a very depressing book, but it's still got some powerful stuff in there. Now let's talk about Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied from approximately 593 to 570 B.C. Who was Ezekiel? He was one of the 10,000 who was taken away in the second deportation. So his entire prophetic ministry took place while he was in captivity. And he was prophesying to the other 10,000 people that were carried away with him. The first seven years of his prophetic ministry... He continued to prophesy judgment, and he continued to, to see the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. Well, sure enough, in 586 B.C., it was the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. And after that, God set him free to declare hope to the exiles. He began to give visions of resurrection and restoration. He got prophetic words about the end times reign of Jesus Christ that were actually reflected in the book of Revelation. Um, many, many hundreds of years later. And then we've got Daniel. Daniel was taken away in the first deportation. So in 605 B.C., he was a part of the first group that was taken away. So like Ezekiel, his entire prophetic ministry took place during exile and captivity. That makes these two prophets unique. Where most of the other prophets were warning about the coming judgments... Daniel and Ezekiel were actually living the judgments, and they were prophesying and doing their ministry in the midst of their judgment. His prophetic ministry began two years after he was exiled. So it started in 603 B.C., and it spanned 70 years, and it spanned two different empires. He saw the fall of Babylon, 
and he served in the Persian Empire as well. He was probably in his mid to late teens when he was taken into captivity, and he prophesied all the way up until he was 90 years old. 70 years of prophetic words. Now, the book of Daniel is kind of split in half. The first six chapters are really historical. We learn about Daniel. We learn that he achieved high status in the king's cabinet of two different empires. He served in the cabinet of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and then he served in the cabinet of King Darius when the Persian Empire took over. In a polytheistic culture, Daniel never backed down from his belief in the one true God. And because of his faith and because of his high position, he was highly influential with both the Jews and the Gentiles. The last six chapters of Daniel record his prophecies, and his prophetic words were future-driven. He foretold the first coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, and some of the end-time events. Think about this. Check this out. Daniel is prophesying to King Nebuchadnezzar, and this was his prophecy. He said, King... I see four kingdoms rising and falling, one after the other. And then during the fourth kingdom, I see God bringing an eternal kingdom during the time of that fourth kingdom. Right? So he prophesied this to a king, which was putting his life on the line, because he was basically telling this king, your kingdom's going to fall. But check this out. He says, I see four kingdoms rising and falling. And then in the fourth kingdom, I see God bringing his eternal kingdom. Well, the first kingdom was Babylon. The second kingdom was Persia. The third kingdom was Greece, which was Alexander the Great. And the fourth kingdom was the Roman Empire. And during the fourth kingdom, during the time of the Roman Empire, God brings Jesus Christ to the earth and brings his eternal kingdom. Daniel got his prophecy exactly right 600 years in advance. See, we should get excited about this kind of stuff. This is amazing what these men of God were able to do. So let's look at what is our legacy today from these prophets. What are these prophets speaking into our lives today? Let's begin with Isaiah. What would Isaiah say to us right now? I believe he would say this. There are five words that will change your life forever. Here am I, send me. There it is right there. Five words that will change your life forever. Here am I. Send me. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says in the year that King Uzziah died, so we know this is early in his ministry, in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah gets this vision of God. And he sees the temple and God's inside the temple. And it says the train of God's robe is so huge it fills the temple. And there's these crazy looking angels called cherubim and seraphim that are flying around praising God. And as they praise God, the building shakes. And as the building shakes, it fills with smoke. He's just having this amazing vision of God. And then that gets us to verse 5 where Elijah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, the first thing that happens when you stand in the presence of God is you become aware of just how sinful you are. Right? The first thing Isaiah says when he's standing in the presence of God is, Woe is me. I am so broken. I am such a sinful human being. When we recognize the greatness of God, we also recognize the depth of our own brokenness. But then in verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. 
And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Man, in the presence of God, when we become aware of our sinfulness, all of that sinfulness that we just became aware of, God forgives it in a moment. In a moment, we receive the forgiveness of God. And then in verse 8, Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? I love that it says us right there. There's just, there's a few little hints in the Old Testament that God exists in the plural, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. This is one of those moments. God says, who will go for us? And then Isaiah answers, here am I. Send me. God didn't even say what the mission was. He didn't even know what he was signing up for. But he has this vision of God. He looks around, realizes he's the only one having this vision, and decides, I better respond. Here am I. Send me. Five words that will change your life forever. Five words that sent Isaiah on the great missions of his life to preserve the people of God, to restore the kingdom of Judah, to bring people back to worshiping God. An adventure that ultimately led to him being sawn in half because he continued to be obedient to the word of God. Listen to this. From this example, one might propose the theological principle that the clarity and reality of a person's vision of the holiness and glory and majesty of God is directly related to the clarity of that person's sense of call. The more clearly you see God the more clearly you understand your purpose in this life. And not only that, but the more willing you are to do whatever it takes to be obedient to God. Isaiah had a very clear picture of God. There was no doubt. The temple was full. The walls were shaking. The smoke was pouring out. He saw the glory of God. And in the clarity of the glory of God, he also had clarity of exactly who he was called to be and what he was supposed to do. And he had the willingness to do whatever it took to humble himself, to submit, and to be obedient even to the point of death because he'd had a vision and an encounter with God. Man, if we're in a place in our lives where we're wondering, man, who are we? What am I supposed to be doing? What's this life about? The answers to those questions will be found in an encounter with God. That's where you will find the answer to those questions. When you find yourself face to face with God and in the awareness of your own sinfulness, God redeems you. In that moment, you will understand what you were created for. And then you'll just have to decide if you're going to say those five little words. Here am I. Send me. What would Jeremiah say to us today? I believe he would say this. There is no halfway when you're seeking God. There is no halfway when you're seeking God. Now, if you've gone to church for any amount of time in your life, you've probably heard Jeremiah 29, 11. It's one of the most commonly quoted verses in the entire Bible. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Other translations will say um, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. 
We all know that verse. We quote it. We love it. It's great. Except for one problem. That verse wasn't written to people that are following God. That means if you're already a follower of Jesus, that verse wasn't written for you. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, if we go back to the first verse of Jeremiah 29... Give me just one second here for my Bible app to fire up. The first verse of Jeremiah 29 says this. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. Jeremiah was prophesying to the first batch of people that had been deported. Now Jeremiah wasn't deported with them which means he wasn't there with them in person. He had to write it down and send them a letter. He was sending this letter to people who were in captivity because of their own sin. That's who Jeremiah 29.11 is written to, is people who are in captivity because of their own sin. And then right before verse 11, in verse 10, he says this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah prophesies to the exact year how long Babylon would last. He says 70 years. So check this out. The first deportation happened in 605 B.C. Babylon fell in 535 B.C. in exactly 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied it. Jeremiah died before it happened, but it happened exactly the way he prophesied it. So what's happening here is Jeremiah is prophesying to people who are in captivity because of their own sin. And he's telling most of them, you're going to die in this captivity because it's going to last at least 70 years. And unless you're young like Daniel and you're going to live till you're 90, most of you are going to die before that 70 years is up. So he was telling these people, you're going to die in captivity, but still God has plans for you. He still has a hope and a future for you. What is he talking about? Well, they were taken into captivity as punishment for their sin so that God could get their attention, so that God could restore Israel. Why? So that out of Israel, God could bring Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ would die for all mankind and so that even those in captivity, if they would repent in captivity, they would have a place in eternity because Jesus was going to come and die for them. God says, I still have plans for you. Makes 29.11 sound a whole lot different than the way we write it. But then he goes on in verse 12 and says, Then you will call upon me and come pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place where I sent you from into exile. He says, you will call upon me and I will hear you. You will search for me and you find me. When? When you search for me with all of your hearts. Again, this is written to people who are in captivity because of their own sin. And I believe that today it still speaks to people who are in captivity because of their own sin. 
And God says, if you will call upon me, I will hear you. And if you seek me, you will find me, but only if you seek me with all of your hearts. What does all of your heart mean? It means when you want God more than you want anything else. That's what it means. Right? I've had so many people in my lifetime say to me, well, pastor, I want to follow God, but I still want to do this too. Pastor, I want to follow God, but I still want life my way. I want to do things my way. Pastor, I want to follow God, but I'm not going to change these things. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your hearts. When you want me more than anything else, when you're willing to give up everything, that's when you will find me. And when you find me, I will bring you out of your captivity and I will restore you back to the life I meant for you. Come on. But again, this wasn't written for Christians. This was written for people that are in captivity because of their sin. But there is no halfway. There's no just dipping your, pool, your, your toe in the pool. I'm just going to give God a little try. I'm just going to try him out with just a little bit. No. There is no halfway. You will find him when you seek him with all of your heart. So then what would Ezekiel say to us? He would say this. Silence is not an option. Silence is not an option. If there are people in your life that are in captivity because of their sin, and if they would seek God with all of their hearts, they would find Him, then we need to say something. Silence is not an option. Listen to Ezekiel 33. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land, and he blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning... He would have delivered his life. But, in verse 6, if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. You see, in these days, there were walls that were built around cities to protect from invading armies. And then they would build towers in the walls. And then they would assign watchmen to the towers. And the watchman's job, whether it was day or night, whatever his shift was, his job was to stand in that tower and just scan the horizon. And if he saw an enemy army coming, he was to blow the trumpets. In those days, the trumpet was a ram's horn. It was called a shofar. In Hawaiian culture, we have the conch, right? We blow the shell. Same principle, but it was a ram's horn. He would blow that horn, and everybody who heard the horn would know that that's a warning. There's an invading army coming. We need to set up the defenses. We need to hide the women and children. We need to be ready to defend ourselves. And if they would heed the warning, they would survive the attack. But if they heard the trumpet and they didn't heed the warning... They were going to die, and it would be their own fault. But if the watchman sees the army coming, and he doesn't say anything, he doesn't blow the trumpets, then it's on him. It's the watchman's fault. Ezekiel says silence is not an option.
If there are people in your life that are in captivity because of their sin, whether it's family members, people in our neighborhood, people at our workplaces, wherever we are, if there are people in captivity, silence is not an option. We are the watchmen. We are the ones that God has put in the tower. We are the ones that God has called to give warning. And warning people is not popular. And so what do we do? We keep quiet because we don't want to be rejected. We don't want people to think we're weird. We don't want to be one of those Jesus freaks. We're afraid of rejection. What if I say something and they don't change? Well, you know what? You're not responsible for what they do with the message. You're responsible for sharing the message and making sure you share it in love and share it in a way that reflects the heart of God. We are the watchmen, and silence is not an option. God will restore them if they search for him with all of their hearts, but how are they going to start searching unless we say something? And I'm going to close with this. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back today. What would Daniel say to us today? Daniel would say this, never back down because the lions are waiting. Never back down. Daniel stood for God throughout his entire 70 years in captivity. He stood for the one true God. Even in a culture that mocked his God. Even in a culture that didn't like his God. Even when the culture tried to come against him and attack him for his belief in God, he never backed down. And we know about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, but those weren't the only lions who were laying in wait for Daniel. Listen to Daniel chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5. It says, Then the commissioners and satraps, satrap is a fancy word that just means a leader in the government. So the commissioners and the leaders of the government began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. And then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. These guys didn't like the fact that an Israelite had such a high station in the king's cabinet. So they were trying to do whatever they could to tear him down. So they were searching his whole life, looking for something they could accuse him with. And they couldn't find anything because he was faithful, because he lived with integrity, because he lived an upright life. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter talks about that the devil is roaming around like a roaring lion, looking for whom he may devour. The lions are roaming around. They're looking for opportunities to pounce, opportunities to take you down, to steal away your ministry, to disqualify the gospel in your life, to tear apart your family. The lions are roaming. And so Daniel says, never back down. Because the moment you back down, the moment you compromise, the moment you give into this culture is the moment that the lions are waiting for to pounce. These men couldn't find any accusation against Daniel. So instead, they came up with a plan to trap him. They talked King Darius into naming himself God and saying that people could only pray to him. And anybody who prayed to any God other than King Darius would be thrown into a lion's den to be eaten by the lions. Well, Daniel refused to back down. 
he continued to pray three times a day to his God. So sure enough, the people dragged him in front of the king. The king liked Daniel. The king respected Daniel. The king didn't want to kill him, but he had to. So in verse 16, he throws Daniel into the lion's den. And then the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Think about this. This is a pagan king who just called himself a god, yet he believes that it's the God of Daniel that's going to deliver him. And they throw him in the lion's den, and they roll the stone over. They seal the stone. They leave him there all night. The next morning, they roll the stone away, and there's Daniel still alive. And Daniel says, my God, close the mouths of the lions. He would not let a single lion touch me. Whoo, never back down. The enemy is waiting. He wants to steal everything from you. He wants you to give up. He wants you to compromise. He wants you to give in to sin. He wants to trick you into thinking, ah, I'm good in most of my life. I can compromise in this area. I can settle over here. I can give into the culture here. I can do things the way everybody else does it here. He's trying to fool you because the moment you back down is the moment he's ready to pounce and to steal from you. And Daniel says, don't back down. The lions are waiting. We need to stand for the one true God. And if we would stand for the one true God, no matter what the culture says, we will see the miraculous. Just like Daniel saw the miraculous over and over again in his life. Will you stand with me today? As we close today, I just believe that God is calling us to a place of encounter with him. That like Isaiah, we would stand and we would see God. And we would experience His presence. And in that presence, we would gain a greater clarity of who we've been called to be. We've been called to be the watchman. And silence is not an option. There are people in our lives who are being held captive because of their sin. And God is saying, who will go? Who will tell them? Who will go for us? Who will sound the alarm? Who will share the message? And each one of us standing in the presence of God must decide, will I say it? Here am I. Send me. Will we say it? The lions are waiting. It's in these moments of encounter with God that we are strengthened, that our sin is dealt with, that the gaps in our character are covered by the grace and the Spirit of God. We stand in these encounters with God so that the lion's mouths will remain closed. There will be no accusation against us. The enemy's not going to steal anything from us because we are not going to back down. As we go in to sing this song, I want to invite you, do whatever you got to do right now to experience this encounter with God. If you need to come up here and stand at the altar, kneel at the altar, if you need to kneel at your chair, if you just need to scatter somewhere, if you need to lay down on the floor, I don't care what you need to do. This is a moment to encounter God. And in this moment of counter, we will receive so much clarity, so much forgiveness, so much strength, and we will receive the call of God. Let's go after God right now, right now.